snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. Stepping into the study of British explorer William Lindsay in Beijing, visitors might feel like they are being lured into a showroom of a history museum. Framed maps, photographs, and posters decorate the walls, while a small terrestrial globe sits on the top of a wooden shelf. These two、uh, are from the early 1500s, and then this is a very、uh, important map. Be it a black and white illustration or a piece of atlas, every collection shares the same motive: the Great Wall of China. People initially find it hard to believe that、uh, I'm a Briton in China. I came for the wall and I've stayed for the wall because for them the wall is a single place, place to visit as a tourist. But for me, the Great Wall has been a great、uh, field for exploring, and also a great history book to try and understand, and also a great challenge and a worry to protect. The first Westerner who trekked along the whole length of the Great Wall in 1987, Lindsay, has not only dedicated his entire life in hiking, researching, and preserving this majestic landmark. But also writes extensively about it. In today's show, our reporter Shu Yu talks with this British geographer, writer, and conservationist. Their conversation starts with her asking him what fueled his interest in the Great Wall of China. My first view of the wall was round about 1967, and、uh, at school in Britain, my headmaster said we should have an atlas by our bedsides, and、uh, my atlas was the Oxford School Atlas. And I saw the Great Wall on it, and I thought, when I grow up, I'm going there. I'm going to go from one end to the other, backpack, several months. This is my dream, and I grew up with that dream. Then, luckily, in 1984, I was reminded of my dream because you know I'm from Britain, and in the north of Britain, we have a long wall、uh, called Hadrian's Wall, built by the Romans, and I ran along Hadrian's Wall. And my brother reminded me of my fascination for the Great Wall and said, "Hey, well,、um, now's a good time. China is opening. Deng Xiaoping is opening the door of China, reforming China. You're young. You don't have a wife. You don't owe the bank any money.、Uh, you can cut free and go." And I did. But when you saw the Great Wall for the very first time, did it meet your expectation? Uh, when I saw the Great Wall for the first time, it was late, no, mid March, nineteen eighty-six, and I、uh, went to Badaling, quick day trip to have a look at the wall. And when I saw it, I was scared because it was so steep, it was so cold, and I, as I looked off the wall into the valleys, into the gullies, I couldn't see any villages or people. And I just asked myself, how am I going to follow this great wall for three months when it's so steep, so remote, so far from food and water? So the overwhelming first impression was of fear, 
but fear keeps you alive. And uh, I trod carefully. Uh, I slowly realized, hmm, even in these very uh, remote places, there are a few people tucked away, living in little hamlets in the mountains, out in the northwest. They were herding goats on the Gobi. So, uh, you know, it was a very, very slow understanding of the situation. Yeah. So when you start to run along the Great Wall, it's one year later, like 1987. Yeah, my first effort was 1986, and uh, I call 86 my China apprenticeship. Uh, of course, I hoped to be successful, but I wasn't. I learned a lot along the way. I think I learned the, the keys to, the, to my success. And the keys to my success were, number one, there are people there. Number two, even though we couldn't communicate, if I was patient and if I smiled and if I used some sign language, they realized the farmers knew that this, this foreign friend wants some water or he wants some food or he wants a place to sleep. And I realized that this isn't the kind of journey you could complete in good weather because in North China, there's not much good weather. You know, the summers are long and hot and the winters are long and cold. There's just a few weeks in spring and a few weeks in autumn. So based on all of this, and also the fact that I had to abort my journey in 1986 because of dysentery and a broken bone in the force, I decided to come back in 1987 and divide my journey into two parts, spring and autumn. And that was a good decision because that year I was pretty successful. I managed to trek 2,500 kilometers uh, along the ruins of the wall between Jiayiguan in the west and Shanghaiguan in the east. That was uh, covered over a period of 78 days. When you look back, what is the most memorable thing about that journey? When I think about the journey now, when I look at my book about the journey, the first thing is the crazy things you do when you're young. Although I didn't realize it at the time, a lot of the things I did were very uh, risky, maybe very dangerous, but I didn't really care too much and I just did it. And nowadays, you know, we have uh, the uh, fast communication and we take thousands of pictures in a day, even film. But back then, the fastest communication was a letter. So I was out of contact from my family for periods of, uh, on average, seven, seven or eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, you know, my journey was uh, conducted in 1986-87. This is just 10 years after the end of the Cultural Revolution. So mm-hmm. 10 years after the end of China being closed to the outside world. So there were lots of uh, added difficulties. Most of China was actually closed to foreigners at the time. I was stopped by the police nine times. I was deported once. I used two passports and I made three marriage proposals. This is all much more interesting because people in life are not too interested in smooth success. They're interested in the ups and downs. And my ups and downs make a beautiful story because when you arrived, of course, you met my wife and she's the girl I met. In 1987, I had been given my deportation orders. I was passing through Beijing 
and we just saw each other eye to eye and she said hello what do you do China and I said oh hello I'm William uh, I'm writing a book and then she said oh, my name Wu Qi welcome to China bye bye so just a chance meeting like that develops into a very beautiful thing uh, for me and the police also our relationship has improved enormously the place I was deported from was a closed place became open they invited me back there they made me an honorary citizen when you read my book you see all of these stories in there it's not just a book about the Great Wall it's a book about China in the 1980s people in the 1980s and just the fascination that we have for one another living on Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. I know you are the founder of the International Friends of the Great Wall. Mm. When did you get the idea? What inspired you to start an organization like that? International Friends of the Great Wall grew out of one activity. And that was when I took 100 people up to Jinshanlin Great Wall to spend a morning picking up garbage that I'd seen in the bushes beside the wall. And um, one of the journalists said to me, uh, who are these people helping you? And I said, they're just like me, friends of the Great Wall. And um, she said, are they all foreigners? And I said, no, there's uh, foreigners and Chinese. It's an international group. So in the ensuing month, the term International Friends of the Great Wall became born. Eventually, uh, a few years later, I established a society in Hong Kong called International Friends of the Great Wall, which still exists. When is it? Like 2000? Uh, 2001, I think. Yeah. But how many members do you have right now? Well, we're a very unconventional society. Usually when you're in a society, you fill in a form, you get a membership yeah. card, you pay uh, 100 yuan a year. But we're not like that. If you come to an activity, if you pick up garbage, you've become an international friend of the Great Wall. It's as simple as that. There's no membership cards. There's no membership dues. It's just a bond for life like mm. this. So do you still do activities related to, you know, cleaning up the Great Wall? Oh, of course, yeah. In 2015, we organized four large clean-up activities. Mm. When I say large, we had uh, 20, 25, and we had one um, activity with 40 volunteers taking part. Mm. So this is, you know, walking about uh, three or four kilometers of pathway in the valley and then a couple of kilometers along the wall and a couple of kilometers down and picking up any garbage you see this is a very uh, important part of our work it's the basic bread and butter because it's the tip of the iceberg but it really shows you the environmental crisis in china if the national icon is becoming trashed what hope does the ordinary land when you start to clean up the wall, I think it's in the late 1990s. Right? 1998. So it's like two decades. Yeah. Do you think like the situation changed? It has changed, but there's uh, you know 1.4 billion people in China. There's probably um, 0.4 billion who are caring about the environment. They re these are mainly younger people. Unfortunately, we've given them one hell of a burden. Because the majority, about 60-70% of people, 
have no thought for the environment. They just think it's someone else's business. As long as the garbage isn't in their yard, isn't in front of them, you know, yeah. uh, that's the problem. So it's a problem about education. And I think the key is through children, because as in most countries of the world, of course, parents love their children. And if their children ask them for something, you know, we always give our children if we can. If the children ask us to, you know, save this, use less this, keep such an area cleaner, so on and so on, then older people will do it. Education is the key. I believe around the world, in China, environmental education should be from kindergarten level. Mm-hmm. It should be embedded in the curriculum. You're doing your maths, kids need to be working out how much garbage kilograms families are producing per day if so many people in china buy mineral water bottles and if a certain percentage throw bottles willy-nilly all over the place mm-hmm. how many bottles what size of a mountain of bottles are we talking about this is what i mean by embedding environmental thoughts in the curriculum chinese compositions should be more about writing about protecting the environment Mm -hmm. and the future and children have got to be shown the reality spring travel autumn travel i think children should go to the refuse uh, disposal facility see the mountains of garbage we produce they should be taken to uh, the rivers and the canals around beijing Mm -hmm. to see the color of the water and only this way can we improve? I realize you also involved in the conservation of the Great Wall and all the surrounding areas. Or what's your future plan? Right now, I'm working on a couple of uh, fairly big creative projects. One is, I believe, the future of the Great Wall requires the Great Wall to be studied as a subject in its own right at university level. It should really be studied in China. I hope to make uh, this realization come about and help establish a course in Great Wall Studies at a Chinese university. Then the second thing I want to do is uh, I want to take the Great Wall story overseas because I think it's a fascinating, great story. And I know the man in the street in London, in Paris, in New York, in Los Angeles will be fascinated by it. And I think if more people can know China's history, then Sino-foreign relations can be better. And that was British explorer William Lindsay sharing his passion for the Great War with Shu Yu, as well as his experience preserving this world wonder. Coming up... Many people think that... In studying the Great Wall, we just study the wall, you know, brick, stone, earth, wall. But no, the Great Wall story is the story of the relationship. Stay tuned. After a short break, Lindsay will touch upon his most recent book, The Great Wall in 50 Objects. Bestseller, smash hit, page turner. Ink and Quill delves into the very heart of the works that make us laugh, cry and sigh. You have written four books. Yes. Why the fifth one? 
Uh, this particular book, the idea was triggered when I was in Mongolia. I was in Mongolia because uh, from about the year 2007-8, I was beginning to think, hmm, I'm in China studying the Great Wall, which is a defense between the Chinese people and the nomadic people yeah. in the north. Maybe I should learn more about the people in the north. So I went up there to look at their landscape and their way of life and to experience the climate and the weather. And of course, I went to some museums. And as I was in the museums, I saw things that were vivid images in my mind of the Great Wall story. Because, you know, we're always talking about, well, the nomads from the north were such superb archers and horse riders. So I saw their arrowheads yeah. uh, and I saw their stirrups and out on the step, I saw their horses. So I thought it would be nice one day to link these objects together into the Great Wall story. Mm. And uh, very soon I decided on the idea of telling the Great Wall story through objects. And I thought, well, I'll choose a set number, maybe 50, maybe 100, and perhaps 60, 70% would be from China, and the other 30% would be from outside China, whether that was Mongolia or a few things that were Great Wall related in Europe or North America. It didn't matter where they were, as long as they had a part of the Great Wall story to tell. But how did you make the selection? Because I believe there will be thousands of objects. Yeah, potentially there are, there are many, many different things. And uh, no one would choose the same, you know, if you were limited to 50 or limited to 100. But uh, when I had the idea, I had recently very much enjoyed a series of podcasts on BBC Radio called The History of the World in 100 Objects, in which uh, Neil McGregor, the director of the British Museum, introduced 100 objects from the British Museum. And that's like, must have been an extremely difficult choice because there are millions of things there. But uh, what I really liked about the approach was, I've been to the British Museum many times every time I go back to Britain, to London. We look around, look around, and you've seen lots of things and you're gasping at the enormity of these statues and the colour of these tapestries. But in the evening, when you actually discuss what you saw, you don't understand that much. Yeah. So I really like the idea of being very uh, limited in choice and telling a very detailed story about that one thing. So each object has a significant point, a key point. In a way, each object is a kind of milestone. And I really like this. When I read this book, I'm really curious about the heading. Yeah, so like uh, the titles. In the beginning, I saw things you talk about the Great War in yes. 50 objects. So yeah. I thought, well, okay, the first one will be about like the pre-Qin dynasty or the yeah. Qin dynasty. That's no, right. it's not start like that. No. Because I, I, I've done a lot of writing and I've realized, well, personally, it's not always a good thing to start a story at the beginning. Of course, I've written books where basically the beginning is, you know, the warring states, Qin Shi Huang, uh, yeah. and the, the hist I call this 
the historical, the chronological plot. Yeah. And I thought, for this, that's not going to work. So maybe I was sitting here in the study and I saw the Ortelius map on the wall there and I thought, there were 5,000 copies of the map, that map produced in the late 1500s, early 1600s. That is the way the first Europeans saw there was a Great Wall in China. Mm. I thought, this is a perfect start. And I thought, to counterbalance that or to match that, how did the Chinese people hear about the Great Wall? And we all know that, you know, the Great Wall consumed the labours of millions of Chinese over the centuries. But in fact, most Chinese in history never worked on the wall and never went near the wall. But they heard about it through a story, a legend that was told in a song or in a tea house or by granny or grandpa you know, just rocking the baby to sleep. I thought this is the way the Chinese heard and that's the perfect match. The way foreigners heard about the Great Wall, the way most Chinese heard about the Great Wall. And then my editor thought uh, this was a great start and also we should keep that introductory idea going a bit longer because people, they pick the book up, it's got Great Wall on the title. We need to tell them, why was the wall made? So let's introduce the enemy. And we'll introduce the enemy by giving them a face-to-face, FaceTime, if you like, with the enemy. You know, you can read about the Xiongnu, the, the Huns being the great enemy of China uh, during the, uh, the Qin and the Han dynasties 2,200 years ago. But I'd never seen a face. But it, when I was in Mongolia, I saw the face of the Hun. And I thought, that's the perfect object. Because for the first time, this is the enemy at first sight. And then because the name of the enemy changed over the centuries, you know, by the 11, 1200s, the Xiongnu had gone and a new nomadic nation had been born. And that was the Mongol nation. Mm. And there was a painting of a Mongol horseman. But it was mysterious why he should have been painted at a time, the Mongols were the arch enemy. And then after those uh, images of the enemy, I introduced some great wall building materials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but for the rest of the chapters, we start like from the part two, and yeah. then you start to follow this chronicle plot. Yes. Yeah. The book is divided into five parts, and the title of each part, of course, it relates to the wall, but it also relates to building. For example, the core means the core of the building Mm -hmm. and the core of the Great Wall story and that's the Ming Dynasty. Yeah. Because that's the, you know, the king of all the Great Walls Mm -hmm. marked on today's maps. And then the final part, part five, is ruins. And that relates to the time post-1644, the Ming Wall was abandoned. The Qing didn't use it. It fell into ruins. But this is the time when the wall was seen and surveyed and travelled along yeah. and photographed. And even in the 1930s, it was brought back into service as the Japanese prepared to invade the heartland of China. You know, when I come to your house and you talk all about the Great Wall, what does the Great Wall mean to you? Great Wall has become an old friend. I've been uh, going to the Great Wall so often for so long, it seems 
a very familiar place. But every time I go there, I feel very thrilled and excited and privileged. And I couldn't live without it. You know, this morning I was taking a taxi downtown and uh, the driver was asking me how long I've been in China and how old am I and what am I going to do when I retire? And I said, I will never retire <laughs> because uh, I don't really have a job. I just have a passion. So I get up and I do the things I like doing. And the only place I can do this is in China at the Great Wall. That was Shi Ru talking with William Lindsay, the British geographer, writer, and conservationist. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. To learn more about us, you can follow our Facebook account China Plus, or simply download our podcast by searching the keyword "Ink and Quill" on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host Yang Yong. See you next week.